According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me this morning, if you would, once again in the book of Isaiah. This is our 45th week in this book study, and so we arrive at chapter 45. We have Cyrus, who was introduced to us two weeks ago. Remember, we had an off week last week with uh, Lost Pines joining us and a special message there. But uh, two weeks ago, when we were in chapter 44, we were introduced to Cyrus. The final verse of chapter 44 says, It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He will perform all my desire. He shall, and he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. And so we have Cyrus, the Persian king, introduced to us prophetically by Isaiah hundreds of years before he's actually born, before he enters into human history, but he is mentioned by name uh, here in this book. And part of what the skeptics and the, the, the God-haters and the Bible mockers will say, well, that couldn't have been written ahead of time. That must have been written later, after the Persian era, after they knew his name. After they knew that, that Cyrus would be the king that would let them go back to the land, then somebody uh, forged this part of this document, this, these chapters, and passed themselves off as if they really were Isaiah. In a, in a very devout Maccabean-era Jew in about the 2nd century B.C. must have written this uh, as a lie, as a fraud, to pass himself off as Isaiah uh, after the fact, because it's too accurate. God can't write things ahead of time, which is what they're saying. And of course, once they reach that point in their logic or in their argumentation, you can stop them right there and say, wait a minute, the whole point of Isaiah is that God is the God who writes things ahead of time. He's mocking the fallen angels because they can't do what he can do. They can declare the end from the beginning, and they can recount it in order. And the whole point to Isaiah is things that have yet to happen, such as a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And we've already passed that in chapter 7. So uh, we're, we're beyond the point where we accept the fact that God is God outside of space and time, and he writes his, prophecy, his prophecies ahead of time. That's why we call them prophecies. All right. So the prophecy related to Cyrus uh, was uh, introduced. The name was introduced at the end of chapter 44, and the actual message itself comes in chapter 45. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his Messiah, his anointed, his Christ. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask God the Father to sanctify our thinking and to bless our study in his word today. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, it is our privilege and our blessing to assemble together on this day. We thank you for the freedom that our land still possesses, Father, whereby we are uh, able to gather in a public building with a sign out front. We are able to express our faith in Jesus Christ openly, without compromise, without apology. And Father, uh, those are grace provisions that come directly from you, and we will enjoy them so long as you provide them. And we thank you for what you've made possible. Now here this day, Father, set aside distractions, open the eyes of our understanding, and bless us in the message that you delivered to Cyrus all those years ago. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his Mashiach, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. 
I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places, so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. All right, here's the introduction. And fulfilled prophecy is what's going to lead Cyrus to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Fulfilled prophecy is going to be the testimony that will take this Gentile to a regenerate state, I believe, with Daniel as the primary uh, evangelist. So Cyrus is the recipient of a personal, thus says the Lord, message. It always gets our attention when we have the formula, thus saith the Lord, and we have a verbal revelation that is coming through a prophetic agent, most of which in the scriptures are being sent to Israel. Most of the thus saith the Lord messages are being delivered to the covenant nation on this earth that was Israel in their stewardship. But here is a personal Thus saith the Lord message, specifically to Cyrus, his anointed. And that would get my attention, certainly, (laughs) if I was born and if I found that there was a subject people, I become king and there's a subject people in my kingdom that have a prophecy that named me by name, uh, you know, hundreds of years before I was born, that would get my attention. Okay, and it gets the attention of Cyrus here. There's other traditions that uh, that Alexander the Great likewise was very impressed with the Book of Daniel because of the the shaggy goat and the prominent horn and the Jewish rabbis that explained to Alexander that they'd been expecting him, and uh, it made a big impact on Alexander. He liked being. Uh, written about by gods, and, uh, and he gave the Jewish people a very favored place in, his, in the Greek empire because of that. Likewise, I believe Cyrus was very impressed by the prophecy of his service, and I believe he becomes a born-again believer because he's called a servant, and he's called a shepherd, and he's called a Christ, the Messiah, in the vocabulary here of verse 1. But we see the hand of God on his life, the hand of God on his life, for the sake of the Jewish people, not for his own sake, but for the sake of the Jewish people. The hand of God in his life for the sake of the Jewish people will bring Cyrus to a saving knowledge of the Lord God of Israel, that Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel, is going to get the attention of this Persian king and bring him to a saving knowledge. It's a principle that we have here. We also have in the life of King David. This principle is very much an imitation of King David in 1 Samuel 17. He understood God has a plan. And when God has his hand on your life, what can stop you? All right? What can stop you? And consider what his hand on your life is. Consider what assignment he has for you in your generation. I don't suspect he's going to make you a king and give you battlefield victory uh, across the globe. He might. Okay? I, won't, I won't tell God what he cannot do. But that's what he did for Cyrus. He lifted up Cyrus, gave him, he had a, a Persian father, he had a Median mother, or was it the other way around? Anyway, it's a mixed marriage, a political marriage, and he was able to unite the Persian and Median people and brought about this empire, the, the Medio-Persian empire, as we understand it, as history records it. And God gave him victory everywhere. Now, God will use different people for different purposes. He uses me as a pastor, and he uses different people in different ways. 
I love the verse in Acts 13 where it says, David, after he served the purpose of God in his generation, that he breathed his last, was buried, and was gathered to his fathers. I would like each one of us on our deathbed to say, I've done the work God has given me to do. Well, Cyrus's work was to subdue nations. And God takes him by the hand to subdue nations before him, to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. Does that sound familiar to you? Jesus Christ is the one who opens doors no man can shut and shuts doors that no man can open. Jesus Christ controls human history because God the Father is pleased to give all things to his Son. All right. But notice, it's not so that you can be full of yourself and proud of you, okay? It's not to Bob be the glory, great things he has done. It's to God be the glory, great things he has done. And Cyrus can't boast. It is for the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one. Babylon was was chosen to be the instrument of, of Judah's destruction. Persia is going to be chosen to be the instrument of Judah's restoration, to issue the decree that the Jews can return to their land, that they can rebuild their temple, and even to pay for that rebuilt temple was the blessings of Persia, to uh, of Cyrus specifically, to fulfill. I like 1 Samuel 17. If you're familiar with this, you ought to be. Everybody is. David and Goliath, right? And uh, here's David, who's not yet king. Here's David, who as a boy in Jesse's fields, remember, he was anointed as king. He was the youngest of all of Jesse's sons, and he was anointed king. But then he didn't just immediately go take a seat on a throne somewhere. It was years later that he becomes king, after Saul reigns for 40 years. And so uh, there's so many lessons we can learn from this about patience and about waiting on the Lord and claiming His promises and trusting that God knows what He's doing and not trying to help God fulfill His promises, (laughs) right? God doesn't need our help to make good on what He promised to do. But I think it also shows a sense of courage. David's not scared to death keeping himself very safe so that he can be king someday. He goes face to face with this giant knowing that he's going to be king someday. And with a divine viewpoint perspective, that the battle is the Lord's. And so I like this in 1 Samuel 17 when he goes face to face with the giant and he puts things in a spiritual perspective. And he testifies to this very thing. Uh, So the taunt, let's see, the Philistine, Goliath is taunting him in verse 43. The Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his, that is the Philistine gods. And the Philistine also said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. But David's not impressed with any of this. This man that stands nine foot six with all the the, uh, armaments and everything that he has. And David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. You talk about putting things in perspective, because who's in charge? Who wins battles and who loses battles and why? And if you have a divine viewpoint perspective, you understand that Jesus Christ controls history. This day, the Lord will deliver me, deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth. So it seems like they're both taunting one another, right? My dad can beat up your dad. My God can beat up your God. 
For the Philistine, it's an empty boast because the Philistine gods are demons and fallen angels and imposters anyway. But for David, is this an empty boast? Is he just uh, having a testosterone contest here or whatever? He's communicating the truth. And he goes on to say, you're going to lose, I'm going to win so that I can be full of myself and proud and boast. or No, not about me at all. He says that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. David, you know, you can imagine, he could, if he wanted to be prideful, he could go the rest of his life going, hey, I'm the guy that killed Goliath. I'm the guy that killed, like, you know, I'm the guy that shot bin Laden or something. I'm the guy that did this. I'm the guy that did that. And David said, I'm, yeah, I'm the guy that killed Goliath, but that's so the whole world can know that there's a God in Israel. There's a God in Israel. What a pattern. What a, what a privilege that we have. Let's understand, if the hand of God is on your life, and I believe it is, it is not for you. It's for Him to work through you to glorify His Son. And uh, we don't ever want to lose sight of that. Cyrus' salvation and his active obedience to the will of God are going to have an evangelistic benefit to every nation that he was given to rule. Do you think it had an effect on all those other nations that he ruled over? Because he treated the Jewish people differently from every other nation that was under him, every other people group that was subject to the Persian Empire? His salvation and active obedience. What a blessing if the king of your land or the president of your land or the governor of your state or the mayor of your town, the precinct chairman of your precinct or whatever, at every single level of governmental authority over you, To have a believer instead of an unbeliever is a blessing. And to have a believer under doctrinal teaching is the best blessing of all. Because I'll tell you something, there's a lot of Christians that are born again, we're going to be with them in heaven, but they are confused and wrong in much of their doctrine. And that's heartbreaking as well. His salvation and active obedience to the will of God will have an evangelistic benefit to every nation he was given to rule. And so we see here, Isaiah 45, 5 says, I am the Lord, there is no other. Now, see, it starts off in verse 4, though you have not known me, but he's going to come to know him. And in coming to know him, then this testimony goes forth. I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, so that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. The unique glory of Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. All right? This holy name for God. I spent six hours at a synagogue yesterday and they, they never would say Yahweh. Every time they would read in the text, they'd substitute Adonai for it every single time. Every single time. And even in their hymns, even in their music, they're reading, they're singing Kadosh, 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 right? Holy, holy, holy is, and the text says, Yahweh Tsevayoth, but they would sing it, Adonai Tsevayoth. So Kadosh, 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 uh, Adonai Tsevayoth, because they will not vocalize the name of Yahweh. So we see it here. I am the Lord, there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these 
All right. Now, I wish I had time to break that down. The, the poetry is fun. The participles, I think, are significant because they come in tandem, they come in pairs. By virtue of forming the light, then there is a consequence, the absence of light, the rejection of the light. Did God create darkness? Or in the creation of light, is there then consequent, consequentially then, darkness is generated as an absence of the light that God created? Likewise, causing well-being. Does that then causatively generate as a consequence the circumstances of calamity. That is, that we put ourselves in a place of calamity when we choose to take ourselves out of his provision for our well-being. So he provides that which blesses us. He provides that for our well-being. And then we choose something else instead and end up in the calamity. What do we expect? (laughs) All right? So... There's uh, the, the parallelism of it there, and, and that's significant in the participles and in the, the, uh, the passage. So, uh, but related, I think, to Isaiah 45 as a passage in the book of Acts that talks about the purpose for government, the purpose for uh, and the blessings you can have when there are believers that are over you, and the hand of God in history. And so I hope this morning we can make this connection appropriately. God has his hand in every nation on this earth. This, this chapter proves that he's involved in the, the history of the Persians, okay? That might interest you if you're scared about Iran with nuclear weapons. Well, God has a plan for the Persian people, and he's in charge. Makes a difference, doesn't it? The ancient Persians are the modern Iranians today, okay? If you didn't make that link. Uh, hold your finger here, and let's look over at Acts 17. God has a purpose, not just for Israel. They've got a land grant. They've got boundaries. Every nation has boundaries. And those boundaries are God's sovereignty to determine. Not just Israel. Every nation. Israel, of course, is the covenant nation. Israel's boundaries are not only geopolitical, but also sacred in fulfillment of their covenant duties to the Lord. But every nation on this earth has boundaries that God sovereignly fixes or moves or destroys. And the proof of this comes in Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 27. In uh, Paul's second missionary journey as he is preaching in Athens, and he gives this famous sermon on Mars Hill at the Areopagus, okay? And uh, he says, men of Athens, I observe you are very religious in all respects. A lot of devout people in the world, but their devotion gets them nowhere because they're worshiping idols, While I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. (laughs) This is how paranoid they were. You know, just in case, we we have all these idols and all these temples to every God we know about. Make sure our bases are covered. And in case there's a God we don't know about, let's go ahead and throw this one up here. To an unknown God. And Paul says, let me tell you about this God you don't know about. To therefore what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Understand, ignorance is not a barrier to worship. (laughs) A lot of folks prove that every Sunday, right? Ignorance is not a barrier to worship. But intelligent worship, what we are called to do, our intelligent service of worship as defined by Romans 12, requires that we don't just muddle through with a zeal not in accordance with knowledge. So it says... This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, 
since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Paganism is trying to placate these false gods to make them happy, and uh, they have no needs. We understand that God has no need. The real God has no needs. He himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. It comes from God. Notice, and he made from one man, I think the old King James said from one blood. All right, same thing. From one man, one blood, one person. In other words, Adam. Every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. We are all of us Adamic. Okay, all of us are from Adam, from one man. And so that's why racism is so ridiculous. And anything else that comes from that. We're either in Adam, or thankfully now, we are in Christ. And that's the grace provision of our salvation. But just in earthly terms, we're all Adamic, we're all human. The only race I'm concerned about is the human race, right? Every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined... Now notice, what did he do at the Tower of Babel? He confused their languages and he scattered them abroad. He absolutely separated the people groups across the globe... And to me, that's much more believable than some kind of a ice bridge from Siberia to Alaska. But that's, that's a different sermon, all right? He populates the continents. Notice, though, uh, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined, wow, God's sovereignty is at work. He makes the choices. He determines. He picks. He chooses. Having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Look who's in charge. Not only the times, but the boundaries. And so for the United States of America, we were birthed in 1776. When are we concluded? When does he replace the United States of America with what follows? Or Texas. When does Texas get its seventh flag? All right. Do we still have six flags? No, I thought we had to throw down one of those six flags. I thought we're now five flags and one we don't talk about over Texas. I don't remember. All right. Okay, we're still six flags over Texas. When does the seventh flag come? Who's in charge of that? When do the boundaries drop? When do the new boundaries get formed? God's in charge. This is not Cherokee land anymore. Or not Cherokee. This is not Comanche land anymore. Why not? Why not? Because God's in charge. All right. And I don't have any problem with Mount McKinley, to be honest with you. It's not. It's, whose land is it now? Did, did, did we get conquered again? Are we, you know, is it, is it, uh, yeah, anyway, get me going. Now, the point to this, why does God bless a particular nation? Let's say we're not talking about the covenant nation of Israel. We know why he blesses Israel and we know why he curses Israel, but why does he bless America? Why do we sing God bless America? Why would he, or why would he not? This verse tells us, it says that purpose clause, so that the intention for times and boundaries. They would seek God. So if there is a land of freedom whereby worshiping Jesus Christ and preaching the gospel and and gathering together to study the Word of God, if those freedoms are promoted by a culture, then we have a people group that will be blessed because they are serving the purposes of the one who determines our appointed times and the boundaries of our habitation that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For it is in him that we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. 
And so if you want to deal with a totalitarian atheistic state, uh, a totalitarian atheistic state may not last the 200 plus years that this nation state has lasted. And then how much longer will this nation state last if we become the totalitarian leftist state that we're on the way to becoming? God's in charge. So Cyrus is salvation and act of obedience to the will of God. See, am I all excited about who might get elected to the next, uh, the next ballot box? I would much rather the guy that's in there now get saved. How would that be for fun? I mean, can you imagine how the demons would howl to have a great big exorcism over uh, the White House or whatever? If he got saved and got positive to doctrinal teaching, that realized that cursing the Jewish people is bad, Wow, what a blessing. That's where my prayers are. The creator-creature perspective becomes a ludicrous farce when it is not appropriately maintained. And here we are today, living in the generation of the ludicrous farce. Living in a generation that is so smart with its own smarts, they're so stupid with reality, they can't figure out boys and girls. They can't figure out male and female, he created them. And we've got colleges with 26 gender choices in their enrollment forms. All right? We have confusion as long as the day is long because they are living in absolute defiance of the Creator. And they have absolutely lost the Creator-creature perspective. They are not worshiping the God who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. They are worshiping themselves under the mistaken assumption that there is no God and it's just big bang happened and here we are. The creator-creature perspective becomes a ludicrous farce when it is not appropriately maintained. Verses 8 through 10. And I've got to be careful or I'll preach the whole hour just on these verses. Drip down, O heavens, from above. Let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up and salvation bear fruit and righteousness spring up with it. It's going to happen. Boy, the environment of the millennium is going to be something else. I, the Lord, have created it. I, the Lord, have created it. He is sovereign. And He might delegate some of that to humanity, but what He doesn't delegate, He maintains sovereign control over. Woe to the one who quarrels with his Maker. Who are you, O pot? All right. An earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. You know, if you think you're special, but you're a clod of dirt, okay? You just happen to be taken from other clods of dirt and molded in His image, and, and uh, you have the breath of lives, and, and we are in the image of God. But when that soul departs the body, your body is biodegradable. We are the ultimate recycling plan, right? We go back to the dust to which we have come. Woe to the one who quarrels with his Maker, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth, Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, he has no hands. Are you critical of what God does? First of all, saying, why are you doing this? And then secondly, criticizing how he's doing it. You know, can you imagine? Here's your potter and you're making this idol and you're doing whatever and you haven't gotten to the hands part yet. And the lump of clay says, when are you going to get to the hands? I haven't seen the hands yet. How, how ludicrous is that? Patience, lump of clay, I'm getting there. Okay? 
This is, this is similar to the rebuke in Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, since you seem to know. Okay? You got all this helpful hint now as far as how you think I should run this place. Where were you when I made this place? I'm in charge, not you. How ludicrous is this? It gets even worse. Woe to him who says to a father, you ever back talk your father? You ever ask your father, what are you doing? Do you do that when he is begetting you? Who does that when he is begetting you? Who, woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, to what are you giving birth? You see the ludicrous farce, the context for this verse uh, we could be rather crude with it this morning. I'm going to try not to be, not my intent. But imagine in the process of childbirth, as a mother is in this anguish and agony and screaming and blaming her husband for everything, and it's just getting loud and ugly, and this child is in the process of birthing, which involves a lot of pushing and grunts and pain. If that child just all of a sudden speaks up and says, excuse me, right? I'm not having fun here. Can we help? You know, whatever. Whatever that child might choose to complain about. At the moment of the childbirth, to criticize the mother for what the mother thinks she's doing, okay? Or at the moment of insemination, to demand of the father, what are you doing? The potter and the clay metaphor (laughs) featured throughout Scripture. And it's a useful metaphor. It's a useful metaphor because it makes the sense. There's not a pot around there that potted itself, okay, that made itself. There's nothing that's self-caused in its own self-existence other than God, the I Am. I Am is the only self-existent being in, in existence. In fact, he defines what existence is himself and anything else that he chooses to manifest. So the potter and the clay metaphor is featured throughout Scripture. We've already seen it way back in chapter 29, you might recall. Isaiah 29, 16. The potter and the clay. Not only in terms of sovereignty, but also in terms of the purpose for why he's making a clay pot. Is it an honorable purpose? Is it a common purpose? Is this a pot that's suitable for food? Is this a pot that's designed for uh, the bathroom? What are you going to do with this pot? All right. You know, if you're using your mother's fine crystal to change your oil, she'll probably take issue with that. This is your crystal uh, thing, and it's, it's designed for, it's not designed to change your oil or a bedpan or whatever else. Pots are designed by their designer, by their manufacturer. All right. So Isaiah 29, 16, you, you uh, turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? Or what is made should say to its maker, he didn't make me. This is the insanity of Satan. I will be like the Most High God. Well, it's too late. You're already a created being. You cannot retroactively become uncreated self-existent, the eternal I am, in order to say such blasphemous lies, you must first exist to say such things. And so the origin of your existence is already done. That, uh, so should the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, he didn't make me. Or what is formed, say to him who formed me, he has no understanding. Well, 
Boy, he really messed up. He didn't know what he was doing, did he? All right. Now, we, we tend to think so. We tend to get so full of ourselves, we're, we're going to give God the business and tell him everything he's doing wrong. Jeremiah 18 and verse 6, we'll have this coming up. There's other uh, potter metaphors as well that are very useful. But Jeremiah 18, 6, the word of the Lord came to me saying, can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does? Okay. And this, the verses that precede that, verses 1 through 4, Jeremiah goes down to the potter's house and he's making something on the wheel, but then the, the clay was spoiled and so he remade it into another vessel just as it pleased the potter to make. So much we can teach in that. We'll get there, coming up in Jeremiah. But verse 6, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. So he might remake that nation or he might just smash it as earthenware pottery if it does evil in my sight because he's the potter. Ultimately speaking, smashing the, 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 the shards of the pottery uh, is, is, leaves them useless at that point. It just becomes a heap. It becomes a, a, a garbage heap, a garbage dump a place for burning, a place, uh, a waste place. And uh, that's what the, the fine price was for our Savior. The 30 pieces of silver went and thrown to the, to the potter's field and uh, shows you the high estimation that Israel had for their Messiah. Likewise, Romans chapter 9, verses 20 and uh, 21. Who are you, O man, that argue with a potter? Remember, tools ought not boast. We saw that in Isaiah 10, 15. If you have been created for a purpose, if you've been designed as an axe or as a hammer, don't get proud of yourself because you can pound nails or because you can chop wood. That's what you're designed to do. And okay, you're a great axe. You chop wood, proud of you, happy. But uh, you're not going to... I need a screwdriver to, to screw in this screw and I need a hammer to pound this nail and I need you know, other tools to do other things. I'll stop there. But the tools, the tools would be bad if the wrong tool was used for the wrong purpose. But in the hands of the one wielding the tool, the, the, the carpenter is the one that gets all the glory. Not the tool. Tools ought not boast. Same thing with the creator, or the, the creator-creature perspective. The creatures don't tell the creator what he's doing and why. We submit to the Creator and glorify Him. Tools ought not boast. Vessels have no business telling their Maker what to do or how to do it. What to do or how to do it. You know, imagine the defiance. Just, God, who do you think you are? Okay? God? (laughs) And yet, don't we? When we sin, when we rebel, we're telling God what we think of His plan. Well, all right. You want me to do this? Forget that. I'm doing this. And the maker is telling the creator, I'm sorry, the thing made is telling the maker that he's not pleased with what the maker is doing. We're the pot arguing with the the potter. We're the infant in delivery arguing with the the mother who's birthing us, right? Or we're the seed arguing with the father. It's ludicrous. 
To dispute with our Creator is as ludicrous as a child disputing with his father in his insemination or with his mother in her labor. Both are absolutely ludicrous to think about. Insane that a baby would argue with his mother in her labor or that seed would argue with dispute with his father at the point of conception. All right. Fun text. (laughs) All right. Let me get back now to Isaiah 45. How ludicrous is this? What are you doing? It's a message of woe. So thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and His Maker. God says, I am your God, I am your Maker. And here's what I have to say. Verses 11 through 19. Three more, thus says the Lord, messages. So we already saw the first, thus saith the Lord. It was to Cyrus in verse 1. But now we have three more, thus saith the Lord, messages. Verse 11, verse 14, and verse 18. Thus saith the Lord, Ko Amer Yahweh, or Ko Amer Adonai, if you don't want to vocalize Yahweh. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and his maker. Ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. In other words, get oriented to the plan of God. Ask God what his purpose is. Ask God what his plan is. Seek him. The one who comes to God must believe that he is, and is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Ask me. And as you ask me, you shall commit to me the work of my hands. And so I get oriented to his plan. God, what are you doing? What are you doing, God? What are, your, what are the works you've prepared for me? I want to do what you're blessing. I don't want to just do what I want to do and then af- ask you after the fact to bless it. Ask me. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands. I ordained all their hosts. He has every star in this universe precisely where he wants it, every planet, every asteroid. He can handle my life. (laughs) He's big enough to handle what I'm dealing with because he planned it already. The works that were prepared beforehand that I should walk in them. Every day, from day one to day last on this planet, he's got it all in his plan. The three more, thus saith the Lord, messages describe the coming millennium and also provide information related to the tohu wabohu judgment of Genesis 1. Isaiah 45 is perhaps one of the most significant passages in all the Bible, particularly as we want to understand the tohu wabohu statements of Genesis 1-2. Because the tohu wabohu statements are defined, they're not defined in Genesis 1-2, but they are defined here. They're defined in Jeremiah chapter 4, and we have additional context, I think, that we can glean out of Job 38. Because if all we're doing is reading Genesis, we have more questions than answers, okay? Yes, there's answers in Genesis, but there's also questions in Genesis. And the questions in Genesis, a lot of times those answers come from Isaiah, (laughs) or they come from Job, or they come from Psalms or other places. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. Wow, what happened? How did it get that way? Why was it that way? And the Spirit of God was brooding over the surface of the deep. Genesis 1 doesn't tell us why the heavens, why the earth was formless and void. It just says that it was. Okay? The earth was formless and void. How? Why? It wasn't designed that way. And it wasn't originally made that way. 
We'll see that here in verse uh, 18 and 19 specifically. So, these thus saith the Lord messages. God's sovereign control of history arranges everything according to His good pleasure. Why did uh, America get free from Great Britain? Why didn't, uh, why didn't we all just become Canada? Why did Canada stay Canada and America became America? This, this blew their minds when I was in Africa last summer. The Kenyans, the Ugandans, the Zambians, all three, all three were former British colonies. And all three, nobody I spoke to believed me when I said, you know, I'm, I'm really enjoying this because America used to be a British colony too. And they all called me a liar. They said, no, that's not true. Every last one of them. No, when, when was the United States a, a British colony? 1776, we, got, we won our independence. We won our freedom. No, that's not true. All right, go look it up. <laughs> Nobody believed it. Nobody believed it. Couldn't understand why. Because Jesus Christ controls history. That's why. Anyway, I made the earth. I created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands. I ordained all their host. So he's got the earth and human habitation. He's got the heavens and the heavenly host. Everything human and angelic is in his plan. Verse 13, I have aroused him in righteousness. I will make all his ways straight or smooth. He will build my city and will let my exiles go free without any payment or reward, says the Lord of hosts. And this is fun too because, man, I wish I had time for this. Personally, this has an application with Cyrus as the chapter began. But eschatologically, it also has a fulfillment in Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ comes at second advent, what's going to happen? He's going to build the new city. He's going to build the new temple. He's going to bring back the exiles, not just from Persia, but from the four corners of the earth. He's going to regather all the Jewish people from everywhere across the globe. But God's in charge, and we can appreciate that. The Gentiles will be overwhelmed by the glory of God on behalf of Israel. Verses 14 through 17, thus says the Lord, the products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, will come over to you and will be yours. There will be voluntary servitude in the millennial kingdom. They will walk behind you. They will come over in chains and will bow down to you. They will make supplication to you. Surely God is with you and there is none else, no other God. You know, right now, are there nations that are just lining up to bring treasure to the Jewish people? No, there are nations that are lining up to rain nuclear weapons down on the Jewish people. Okay? Can you imagine? What would it be like if there were nations just lining up to give money to America instead of showing up every year in the United Nations trying to take money from America? Okay? Or however else that works. When Jesus Christ is seated on the throne, Gentile nations are going to be bringing tribute as much as they can, as often as they can. So truly you are a God who hides himself, a God of Israel, O God of Israel, Savior. They will be put to shame and even humiliated, all of them. The manufacturers of idols will go away together in humiliation. Yeah, you've got to find a new line of work if you're an idol maker after the second advent of Jesus Christ. Uh, That's not going to be permitted in the millennial kingdom. Israel has been saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or humiliated for all eternity. For thus says the Lord, here's the third thus saith the Lord message. The unfolding plan of God encompasses angelic history, human history, 
and the ultimate habitation of righteousness. The ultimate habitation of righteousness. What is it we're looking for? According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it a waste place. In other words, tohu wabohu. But he formed it to be inhabited. Isaiah 45.18 says that Genesis 1-2 was not the original creation on the earth. Something happened to make it tohu wabohu. And Jeremiah 4 addresses that as well. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, all of the fall of Satan passages that describe the cities and the angelic earth prior to the Adamic earth. I am the Lord, there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. You know, it's not like the Oracle of Delphi or some of the other oracles where you had to go to this great distance and climb some peak and, uh, and then listen to some, you know, demonic writhing whispering of some uh, drug-addled priestess, Okay? That's not how the God of Israel operates. I do not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. He brought them through the waste place and he established them in the land of Canaan. He made his dwelling among them and he gave his written word to them in the Hebrew canon of Scripture. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. He goes on here to uh, announce this and to mock the, uh, the demons and what they're doing. So the unfolding plan of God encompasses angelic history, human history, and the ultimate habitation of righteousness. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring the things that are upright. All right? In any event, if you want more on that, we've got our Plan of God reader out there in the, high, in the hallway. You can read about the tohu wabohu, what happened to make it tohu wabohu since it wasn't created that way in the first place. You can go to Job 38 and see that when God created the earth, the angels were on hand to witness it. In Job 38, it says that they were on hand. The morning stars sang for joy. And um, they witnessed these things. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. If they were on hand to see the earth formed, they must have been around before the earth. There's no other conclusion you can come to. That's why I think the best reading of Genesis 1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The first gap is inside of verse 1. And then the second gap comes after verse 1. Because the earth was formless and void. How did that happen? All right, so we have in the beginning God created the heavens. Gap number one right there, because that's when he created the angels, by the way. Angels weren't created in days one through six. He created the heavens and the angels so that they're on hand to watch the earth and the earth. That's gap number one. Gap number two is before verse two. And the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. All right. Finally then, verses 20 and following. 20 through 25. Gather yourselves and come. We have the uh, mocking of the fallen angels. 
The fallen and angel dominion of this present cosmos is coming to an end when God demonstrates their utter uselessness. The fallen angel dominion of this present cosmos. This present cosmos. You and I are in this world, but we're not of this world. All right? This world is passing away. We are not. We are eternal. This world is passing away along with it its lusts, but we abide forever. What a blessing. The fallen angel dominion in this present cosmos is coming to an end when God demonstrates their utter uselessness. Now, what's taking him so long? (laughs) Why is he so slow? Well, God's not slow, as some count slowness, but he's patient. Patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. If you are uh, grieved over the darkness in our land, if you are grieved that we have this gender confusion, this creation confusion, this insanity, if that grieves you, then thank God that He's patient, that He's given in long-suffering opportunities for the unbelievers to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Because honestly, I'd have been done with this place a long time ago if I was God. But thankfully, I'm not. (laughs) Okay? I'm ready to start throwing lightning bolts and start doing all kinds of stuff. That's not, that's, no. God is patient. He wants sinners to come to faith. So, draw near together, you fugitives of the nations, you remnants, you know. You thought crawling out of World War II was difficult for most of the nations on this planet? It was difficult for most of the nations on this planet. What's it going to be like after Armageddon? the remnants of the earth trying to claw back to some kind of standing or semblance of civilization. I think fugitive of the nations is is uh, an apt description here in verse 20. All of your demons are useless. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. More taunting. God is giving all the fallen angels opportunity to, to pull their collective demonic ignorance and to try to uh, prove for the last and final time that they are like the Most High God. They are not, and they cannot. Who has announced this from of old? Who has announced this from of old, that is, before time? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, Yahweh? There is no other Elohim besides me, a righteous Elohim, a righteous God and Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. In a lot of respects, this is the last gospel call of the tribulation. This is the last gospel call to a lost and dying world before the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ is inaugurated. On inauguration day, no unbeliever will be permitted to enter into the millennial kingdom. They are all executed, Gentile and Jew alike if they are not born again by faith in Jesus Christ. So turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. Remember, the God who cannot lie, and he takes an oath, and he names himself as that oath. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness, and it will not turn back. That's why it is according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. To me, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. 
even the unbelievers as they're cast into the lake of fire for all eternity will do so, testifying that Jesus Christ is Lord. And they will say to me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him and all who are angry at him will be put to shame. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. Indeed, all Israel will be saved because the rebels will be purged. 1 Corinthians 7.31, of course, we shall judge the angels. We shall judge um, this world. That's why those who use the world as though they do not make full use of it for the form of this world is passing away. Right? That gives us our balance between being so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. Right? We have to operate in this world. We have to eat food and make money and spend money and live. We have, we have a secular life. We have a temporal life existence. Man shall not live by bread alone, but you need bread too in addition to the, the, the Word of God. Just take the Word of God in first and then eat. All right? Seek first the kingdom of God. Then seek second your earthly things. And so the form of this world is passing away. So I'm in the world. I'm making use of the world, but not full use of it. Because I, I know there's more than just this world. I'm not caught up and it's not, it's not uh, everything to me. For the form of this world is passing away. Likewise, 1 John 2.17. 1 John 2.17. I was very proud of you last week when Pastor Cliff went long and you all were very gracious and you all handled it just well. And I said, hey, you know, I might do that someday. Maybe I can go 20 minutes long and my flock will show me just the same kind of grace and patience he showed Pastor Cliff. And 1 John 2.17, the world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Isn't that great? This world is disposable but we're eternal. What a blessing. The fugitive remnants of the Gentile nations are commanded to present themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ in His victory. Now to the victor go the spoils. They must reject their idols and accept the one true God. He will separate them as sheep and goats. You connect this to Matthew chapter 25 because the sheep and the goats is the division of Gentiles into believers and unbelievers. And believers will enter into the millennial kingdom. The unbelievers are going to be cast into the fire that has been prepared for the devil and for his angels. Only believers enter the millennial kingdom. He separates them as sheep and goats. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will swear allegiance. Every, t- every tongue. Now you and I will do so gladly. Absolutely you and I will do so. I'll be happy to do so. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Yes. Let angels prostrate fall, let me fall, let all of us. We're going we're gonna to celebrate like I can't begin to tell you. Even the unbelievers, the fallen angels, every demon, they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They will bend the knee at the great white throne judgment as they're cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. Isaiah 45, 23 through 25, Romans 14, 11, Philippians 2, Verses 10 and 11, I've got to close with that. Philippians 2, I was only joking earlier, I won't keep you 20 minutes long today. Philippians 2, might be 3 minutes long today, but that's better than 20. Verses 10 and 11. At the name of Jesus, see, understand this. We talked about the universal definition of everything. 
in the heavens, on the earth, and under the earth, here it is. In Ephesians 1.10, there's no more under the earth, but here we still have an under the earth. For this reason also, because He humbled Himself, he, even to the death on a cross, His victory on the cross was the pinnacle of humility. And so His exaltation will be the pinnacle of exaltation. For this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. That's what we sing when we sing all hail the power of Jesus' name. For this reason also God highly exalted Him so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Those who want to and those who don't. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your Son who manifests the pinnacle of humility ever demonstrated on planet Earth. He accepted divine wrath. He endured spiritual death for our sins. And by His infinite, infinite humility, Father, He is now worthy of the infinite, infinite glory. And I pray, Father, that we might be faithful to testify to this in our ministry, in our preaching, in our service, in our daily walk. If people look at us and we're trying to impress them, I pray that we change our thinking and try to impress them about Jesus Christ. That's who I'm impressed with, is Jesus Christ, Father. And I pray that we might be faithful witnesses to what He is worthy of. And I thank You, Father, in His most precious and holy name. Amen.